We'll be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, or Philippians, excuse me, right next door. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30 this morning. I'd like to begin by reading our passage. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's open a word of prayer. Father God, we come to this morning, Lord, and we just ask that you would give us all clarity of thought as we move through this passage, and and Lord, we just pray that that, uh, you would move beyond my limitations and that your word would be presented and received in its truth, and that as a result that everyone here would be edified and above all, you too would be glorified. And again, Lord, we just ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this passage, verses 27 through 30 that we look at today, it, the, it, it shifts. The, uh, Paul shifts from the discussion of his present circumstances to focus on the, the Philippian congregation itself. Now, the church was not... <clears throat> Church was, was one of these churches that didn't have a lot of major flaws. I mean, it wasn't like, for example, Corinth or the churches in Galatia where a lot of heresies were getting in there. They were actually, we saw in, our, in the earlier verses of this chapter, they were, they were actually participating in the gospel. We noticed two ways. One, they were financing, they were giving donations to the, to the ministry of Paul, and also through their prayers. So they were part, participating in the gospel itself. As, as verse 5 puts it, from, from the first day until now. And so from this point on now, Paul is going to be exhorting them to press on with their commitment by continuing to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so in verse 27, the first section here, we're going to start out with a, we just title this one, Being Good Citizens of the Gospel. The word only placed in the front of the sentence there, verse 27, only conduct yourselves. That word only is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. It projects the idea of above all else or just do this. All right, it continues the thought from the previous, verse in, the previous verses. Let's look at verse 25 and just pick it up and it'll roll in. You'll see the context. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, it's just, here's what you need to do. In in light of my coming or not coming, whether I make it or not, only do this. This is what needs to be focused on. So that word conduct, it's an interesting word, Politituomai, which comes from the word, word polis, which means city. And that's where the word politumai means to be a, literally means to be a good citizen. 
All right. Now this had, uh, if we remember back to our first introductory lesson about Philippi being a Roman colony. Now being a Roman colony was uh, <clears throat> made up of a large number of people that were Roman citizens. Okay. And they were proud of it. That was a big deal because being a Roman citizen carried with it a lot of privileges and it was, it was highly prized in that day. If you were a Roman citizen, you had a lot more freedoms than the non-citizens. You could move about, you could do anything. Matter of fact, Paul was a Roman citizen and that gave him a lot of freedom of motion throughout the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, he used, he, he played the citizen card on a number of occasions. We can read even through the book of Acts. Um, now, the, this verb where it says conduct, this verb needs to be explained just a little bit. Number one, conduct yourselves is in the present tense. And the present tense means continuous action. The present tense in the Greek means it's something that we need to continually do. It's not like, you know, be a good citizen one day in your life. No, this means continuously being a good citizen. Okay, it's also written in the second person plural, which means it's talking about the entire church. And then obviously by extension, us as well. Be a good citizen. And then conduct yourselves is also in the imperative mood. An imperative means it's a command. So it's, it's, it's to be done continuously. It's for all of us. And it's a command. So it's something that we really we need to do. Now, in other words, it's mandatory that we are continuously live as good citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul will later remind the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. So it's, it's kind of a two-fold thing. Or number one, we, we need to live a righteous life before the world. That's the people we're trying to reach. And remembering all along that our citizenship is in heaven. And matter of fact, in, in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, we'll, that's where that statement is made. Now, where it says in a manner worthy of gospel. Okay, well, <clears throat> it's essentially it's meaning to live a life consistent with God's revealed word. It's just that simple. To live a life consistent with God's revealed word. And this mandate is typical of Paul. Paul says this a lot. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 4.1, he says, and I've got these written down here so we don't have to turn to everything. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Colossians 1.10, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And to the Thessalonians, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you received, that you received, that that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to, ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And a matter of fact, he, he all, he's mentioned that aspect of excelling more already to the Philippians in Philippians 1.9. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. And so... Uh, the Philippian assembly was much like the Thessalonians where they had very, they, they've had their problems, but nothing compared to say some of the churches. 
And a lot of Paul's exhortation there was just keep getting better, keep growing, never be satisfied where we're at. And then worthy of the gospel. Again, we are to conduct ourselves in, a, <clears throat> in accordance with our redeemed lives. As a matter of fact, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sometimes to figure out how we want to live, we just take a look at, uh, from the other side of the spectrum, certain things we never want to do. But um, here I want to look at it actually from the positive aspect of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is one this is one of those passages we looked at this past week in the men's Bible study. It came up. First Corinthians six, verses nine through eleven says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a great Follow up, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So all this big list of sins here. Now, one thing I want to point out that verses 9 and 10 are talking about sins that people are committing as a lifestyle it's not talking like a guy told a lie yesterday. Up, oh, you've fallen from grace. No, that's not what this passage. This passage is talking about lifestyles. These are sins that are habitual. They're just they've never repented, never backed away from. Them. They still continually do. But the point I want to get at here that kind of links up with the, what Paul's writing in Philippians is the fact that as such were some of you. It's past tense, and now. What does living up to the gospel mean? It's just like here in verse 11. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Therefore, what what Paul is asking the Philippians to do, and by extension us, is to live up to our calling. Live up to our calling. We're called out of these things, we're called away from these things, and we're called to do something. And that's basically what we'll get to later on. Is to f- starts with fulfilling the Great Commission. So that's where Paul is going. While we're here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, I'll, I'll just read that. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is, in, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore... Glorify God in your body. I know that verse 19 is often when people, I've even used that for uh, as a verse to lose weight. That's not what it's talking about at all. <laughs> Although that's not a bad thing to do if you need to, go ahead. But what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is, 6, 19 and 20 is talking about is your bodies being the temple of the Holy Ghost, don't use them to sin with. Because with the Spirit indwelling us, you have to think about it this way. Every time we sin, we're dragging the Holy Spirit in on this. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. No, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, true believers, again, will demonstrate a change of lifestyle that includes continued spiritual growth. That's called sanctification. All right? You know, the three 
basically the three stages of salvation, justification at the point of salvation, sanctification is the life we're leading now, and if and those that are, yes, we're going to have our ups and downs, but if you put it like a graph, okay, like hopefully your retirement portfolio looks, you're going to start out here and you just, you'll have your ups and downs, but the chart will increase. Your good works will actually increase. All right. <clears throat> and then the third phase of that obviously is glorification. So there's justification, sanctification, where we're at right now, and then eventually glorification when we meet with the Lord. Now, true believers will demonstrate one of the classic examples that I love of, of, of a church as a group demonstrating their salvation. I'd love to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you want to join me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. And Paul is just, again, just, uh, if you know the background on 1 Thessalonians, they were a young church. Paul had to leave suddenly, as he often did when people came and ran him out of town. But he's he got concerned about him because he only had, had time to spend a, a very short time with him comparatively to other churches. So he sent Timothy back to find out and check him. How are these folks doing? How are they doing? I haven't, haven't heard anything. We don't know. And so Timothy goes there and he reports back to Paul that, hey, these guys are just doing great. And so based upon that, here's a, here's a follow-up letter to by Paul based on Timothy's report. Pick it up in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brother beloved, by God, his choice of you. Right there, just by, if we stop right there, just by saying that we bear in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father and his response to that is knowing brother beloved by God his choice of you you're proving we know God chose you because you're living up to the gospel you're living up to it and then he goes on verse 5 and, and, and builds on that thought for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in, with, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. See, there it is. They gave all the evidence of true repentance. They, they just didn't take Christianity as another idol and stick it on the shelf because it was a very polytheistic um, <clears throat> religion throughout the Roman Empire. But no, they turned away from the false religion, adopted the only one true religion to serve the living and true God. And again, that is the evidence of, um, the true evidence of, of what a true conversion looks like. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, back to Philippians. Um, In the remainder of this passage now, that was kind of like the introduction. The remainder of this passage, we're given four characteristics of living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Four characteristics. Let's again, let's go through uh, verses 27 through 30 of, of Philippians 1. It's again, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. For that too from God. For, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, the first, the first uh, <clears throat> characteristic is stand firm. Okay, stand firm, verse 27. And this both has a positive and negative aspects. The first one, the positive one, is to stand firm for the gospel, for the actual the, the, uh, <clears throat> pro- proclamation of the gospel. I want to just take a there's these sam- these verses that talk about this are all over the place. I'd like to start, though, with our Lord in John chapter 14, verse 6. 14, 6 says, Jesus, and this is in the upper room, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, the person of Christ is the heart and soul of the gospel. It's a matter of fact, the person and work of Christ, absolute faith in the person and work of Christ is the gospel. All right? Now, we move forward to Acts chapter 2. And I want to get one of the best ways to see uh, you want to know a great presentation of the gospel, read some of the presentations that are in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, 22 to 41, and listen to, the, listen to everything that Peter, this is that great first sermon on the day of Pentecost that, that the church ever gave. Acts 22, or Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, I'll stop there for a minute. Men of Israel, let's say, where was he preaching? In Jerusalem. And you've got to figure, and 99% of that crowd out there were Jewish. There might have been a, a, a little small group of uh, Gentile proselytes, but for the most part, we're talking a Jewish audience. And then Peter addresses them that way. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death and God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power for David says of him and now he be proceeds a quote right out of Psalm 16. I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor nor will thy Holy One be to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make make me full of gladness with thy presence. Then he goes on, Peter goes on to say, Brethren, I may confidently say, say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in the tomb and is in the tomb with us this day. What he's trying to do here is explain that this isn't talking about David. This is talking about the one David foretold was coming. The one, the, remember the Davidic covenant? that The one that would one day fill, will sit on the throne and fulfill that, that covenant promise. And verse 30, and so because he was a prophet, that's speaking of David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to, to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you persecuted. Right there. <clears throat> you see here, we, here we, we talk about the resurrection. His deity has been pointed out through there. And it's right here. He's the, he's the Christ, which, is the, which literally means chosen one. That's the Greek rendering. from That's a transliteration, the Greek Christos, Christ. Christos means the anointed. Um, the Jewish version would be Messiah, which is also a transliteration of the Hebrew, Mashiach, which means, guess what, the anointed. We're talking about the same individual. And this Christ, so the Jews understood, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, now verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced in the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? <clears throat> and Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and, and, and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And so, again, the the apostles in the gospel, you have, who is Jesus? Well, he's the promised Messiah. He's the Son of God, which makes him very God. He died. He rose from the dead. He paid the price for our sin. Um, You know what's also repent? It's on there. Repentance is preached. You know, repentance is part of a legitimate gospel presentation. So that's what gospel means, good news, right? Well, it's good news because it's held in opposition to bad news. What's the bad news? 100% of humanity being sinners 
stands under the judgment of God apart from the gospel. And the gospel is the one way out from standing under that judgment. Now, matter of fact, uh, uh, in chapter 4, verse 12 of uh, Acts, in another conversation, and this is one where they were standing in, in front of the Sanhedrin, and the apostles said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is, no one, there is no other name under heaven that may be given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the positive side. Just give the gospel. Give it in its entirety and give it its clarity. Too, too often in these days, they try to, people try to make the gospel acceptable. Well, by making it acceptable, you ruin the gospel. It's all got to be there or you've, 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 you've given it. Half of the gospel is not the gospel. Half of the gospel is a false gospel. Okay? A, a gospel without pointing out that Jesus Christ is in fact God is not, that's not a true gospel if you leave that out. Uh, if you leave out that Christ rose from the dead on the third day, that's not the true gospel. All right? It all has to be there. It all has to be there. And then from the negative side, we are to stand firm. Again, for why, what's the other side? Well, standing firm against the satanic attacks and the numerous false gospels are out, that are out there. All right? A classic one is in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, the uh, very famous armor of God passage. Let's look at that real quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, again, this is Paul wrapping up his letter to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand from stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. And having done everything to stand firm. He goes, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you shall which with you be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with, the, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Okay. And that will take us now to the second, the second uh, <clears throat> characteristic. Stand firm in unity in one spirit, back in verse 27. Now, the word, it's interesting here, the word spirit, pneuma, this word is used of the Holy Spirit. It's used of the human spirit. And it's also uh, translated, it's used for breath, wind. And then in this case, 
It's found here. Now, the, in, this, in this context, focusing on our actions and attitudes, Numa here, I'm confident, refers to the human spirit as opposed to the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, that second word in there, mind, back to verse 27, it says, uh, I, you may be standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, the, one, the mind here is suke. And suke is most often translated soul or life. In this case, it's translated mind, but most of the, most of the time it's translated soul. It becomes an interesting uh, situation here because a lot, there's a lot of folks out there. I'm, we can't get into it. We don't have a lot of time, but there's, um, there's a view out there that it's called... Um, <clears throat> trichotomy and dichotomy you ever heard of those terms the dichotomy says man has is two body soul and spirit which they say are synonyms and a trichotomist is one of those say well man is body soul and spirit okay now we we're not going to get into that debate this morning because um, you come out the other end of it you're no better off than when you went in the front end so but um the point, the point here is, I just, it's, it's interesting that these two showed up in the same passage. That, that doesn't happen that often. Um, <clears throat> I personally lean to the trichotomy thing and um, side of the issue, but uh, mainly because of verses like this that have both of them used. And uh, another one that used it, uh, like in uh, Hebrews, where the, the word of the God can split even soul and spirit. Well, if you can divide the two, that tells me there might be two. <laughs> so, anyway, but the point here is standing one spirit with one mind is that as the church, we would be going forward together, united in the gospel, advancing the gospel, being mindful not to do anything that would cast dispersion on the gospel. Okay? Again, as a group, remember, he's writing this, go right back to where we first started, only conduct yourselves. You know, it's, it's, it's in a plural, it's for all of us. It's for that whole church, the whole Philippian church. And then, again, by extension, anybody that reads this letter, Christianity in general, all of us. We've got to just strive together, moving the gospel forward. Not like the Corinthians. I always go back to them. If you want to know what not to do start reading for corinthians this is what we don't want the church to look like <clears throat> first corinthians 1 9 through 13 i'll just you can join me there if you want but god is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son jesus christ our lord now i exhort you brethren by the name of our lord jesus christ that you all agree and there be no divisions among you but you be, that you be made complete in the same mind in same judgment Everybody going in the same direction, okay? For I, for I've been informed concerning, concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean, I'm now I mean this that each one of you is saying, "I am of Paul, and I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas," and I guess the real spiritual ones. Oh, I'm of Christ, right? Okay. And then Paul goes on. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not cru- crucified for you, was he? Or where were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. But anyway, they had this whole thing in there. They were all banding up into little groups, 
That doesn't work. We're one church, one church, all got to be together, going the same direction with the same mind. And if we're going to have the same mind, that brings us to the third, the third thing here is striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is key. This is where it all really comes together. If we're of this same spirit with one mind, we should be striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's huge. Striving together. Soon athleo. It's an athletic term. Maverick, see that there? Soon athleo. Say that athleo. It's from that Greek. We get the term athlete. Athlete. And again, as a team, again, as a team strives to, an athletic team strives to win, we need to strive as a team. And that means everybody doing their part. One of the classic examples I like, um, <clears throat> you don't see it much except in, in the Olympics, rowing or crew, what they call crew. You know, get all these folks just rowing together. You know, guess what? If you get even one person out of sync, you're not going anywhere. You know, or you get half the boat, you go in circles. Okay, <laughs> but uh, but to me, that's a classic example of an athletic team that's got to be really in perfect sync with each other. I mean, they even got a, the coxswain that stroke to help keep them together, right? And they just everybody's pulling their oar. You know, if if you lighten up on your oar, you're not going to go as fast as perhaps you need to to win this thing. So I mean, everything's got to be done right by everybody in unison. <clears throat> and that's and that's what the that's what the point is, I think here Paul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity is just again in the church that for example that tries to achieve unity for the sake of unity. I don't think you're going to pull it off. That's to me. That's trying to do it in the flesh. But a truly unified church, I think, needs to have a common cause and objective. And the the common cause and objective that I see right here is given to us: that we strive together for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, I see two aspects of this. One. Striving to advance the gospel. We've already talked about this, but I just want to, the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, says this. Jesus speaking, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's that, don't forget that last verse teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, why we know that this great commission went beyond the apostles? Because he said in here that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Not to the end of your life or your ministry, apostles, but to the end of the age. Guess what? We're still in that age. All right? And he's still with us he's still with his church now that's number one striving to proclaim the gospel the other one and this is a lot of work too striving to defend the gospel i know we've already spoken a little bit but it's worth going after again the new testament is just full of warnings concerning false teachers 
And also admonitions to stand for the truth. Stand for the truth. I mean, I've just got a list of them here. I mean, for just examples. Matthew 7, 13 to 15. Acts 20, 28. 1 Timothy 6. Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2. I've just picked a few of them here that I'm going to read. Let's start with Matthew 7, 13 through 15. Even though the... Enter, excuse me, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I should have given you more in this one, because I know there's a, and Jesus follows up on it, he follows up by saying, beware of the false prophets, which are out there also. And why do we have to beware of the false prophets? Because they're out there leading you. They want to lead people to that wide gate, the wide gate that leads to destruction, the narrow gate, the small gate. Why? Because the gospel is very specific. It's very small in the sense of there's only one way to salvation, and that is through absolute faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. There's a thousand other ways. There's a thousand other ways that people say you can go to heaven. That's why it's a broad, the broad way. Nope. Narrow is that gate. And that's why that needs to be, that, that truth needs to be not only proclaimed, but defended as well. That, um, <clears throat> no, there's not a thousand different ways. We all get there in our own way. No, you don't. No, there's only one way. Scripture makes that clear. Uh, Jesus made that clear. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes except by me no one he's it and then acts 20 28 acts 20 verses 28 to 31 now here's one here's a warning given by paul to a group of elders elders from the ephesian church okay he called them to himself and he wanted to talk to him and give him this one warning this one last last discussion Acts 20, verse 28 to 31 says, Paul to the elders of Ephesus, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among, <clears throat> among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You notice the emphasis there? I mean, that's, that's, adding, that's, a, that's a powerful statement to add in there. He's reminding these, these elders you, overseers, you, they're supposed to be watching over the flock, shepherding the flock. Remember, everybody, the church. Who is the church? He says, well, the churches are people that he purchased with his own blood. And we must never, ever forget that. That's why it's, it's so important to stay unified with each other, you know, we may have disagreements, we may have this, that, and the other thing, but remember this. Jesus shed his blood for that person too. Okay? Jesus shed his blood for that person too. And don't, don't forget it. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And here's another eye-opener too. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples unto themselves. I mean, even from up from the eldership itself, you can have false 
teachers pop up out of that. Imagine somebody supposedly vetted enough and yet all of a sudden pops up one day and starts teaching false doctrine, leading people off to themselves. Wow. And then verse 31, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. With tears. That shows you the, the emphasis Paul put on standing firm for the gospel. I mean, it would, it would bring him to tears knowing that these things, are, they're bound to happen. I mean, you look around, I'm just so many, I mean, we've got entire denominations that have fallen and have left the gospel. Entire denominations that have done that. Um, you know, it's like in seminaries too. There's, you know, there's, I don't think there's, tw- I may be wrong, but it's, I'm giving a bigger number than I heard. I heard six. I'm going to double it, say it's 12. <laughs> as far as I know, there's not 12 seminaries that take, that hold to the biblical stance on a six day creation. You realize that? That's pretty pathetic. If it's even close to being true, that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad. But that's that happens. And they, these things, they just... I mean, there's a lot of great seminaries that used to be... Harvard, Princeton... The Ivy League used to be a bunch of seminaries. Spiritually speaking, now they're a bunch of cemeteries. It's just, I mean, this. Wow. That's where... That's where faith goes to die. And then 1 Timothy 6, 20 to 21. And, you know, Paul wrote those two letters to Timothy, encouraging him, knowing that, that one day Timothy was going to have to pick up where Paul left off. And at the end of uh, 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, I mean, you can almost, you can, you can feel the emotion when Paul writes, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the, op- the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, <laughs> which some have pro- professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Again, these f- false knowledge, false intellectual arguments that are nothing more than, than means to just drag people away from the truth. They, they got, some of them have real highfalutin phrases, and, um, <clears throat> but yet they're nothing. And then Second Peter... Second Peter chapter 2, um, which is all about apostates and false teachers, says, But false prophets also arose among the people, looking back to Israel. And then goes on from there to say, Just as there will also be false teachers among you. See, there will be. There's, he says, they're, they're coming, they're going to be here, count on it. And what will they do? Well, they, he goes on to say, they will, who will bring in, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And their greed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Notice a lot of these warnings about false prophets, false teachers, much like today, 
Greed is often linked to the false prophet, the false teacher. Kind of reminds us of some of those folks on television, doesn't it? The, some of those TV evangelists, you know? It's like that. It used to be one old country song they used to say that, you know, they, you know, they, they talk about sending money to the Lord, but they give, but they give you their address, you know. Uh, but anyway, and then Jude three and four. Remember, Jude is like a follow-up to Second Peter chapter two. Jude is a follow-up. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once, once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter said, they're coming. Judah, a year or two later, says, they're here. They're here. They're in the churches. And then the fourth point to be made from Philippians 27. I'll pick it up the third point where it says striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then the fourth point is uh, verse 28 to 30. Basically it says be brave. We need to be brave. In no way, I'll just let me pick it up. Striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, and that too from God. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Okay, be brave. In no way be alarmed, or you might say it continues the thought of striving in faith. Alarmed meaning frightened, or startled, scared, intimidated. Don't be scared by them. Don't let them intimidate you. And the best way to not be intimidated by a, by a of course, there's a, being alarmed too. Sometimes when, uh, it's, a, it's alarming and sometimes it can be frightening if the person attacking the faith is a government. You figure that's where most persecution comes from anyway when you stop and think about it. Right? But uh, especially those false teachers, don't be alarmed, don't be intimidated. And the best way to be not intimidated by them is Know what you believe. I mean, really know what you believe. Know what you believe to the point you can explain it. I mean, that, I think that is critical. It could be shocking. It would be shocking. It is shocking to ask anybody, say, how would you, how would you share the gospel? It's shocking how many Christians can't. What I'd like to ask them about this, well, what did what did you believe? I mean, you got to know, right? But it's interesting. A lot of folks just, I think a lot of it is they're intimidated by speaking the gospel to people. But don't be intimidated. And the best way to not be intimidated about sharing your faith is to know it so well. You can just right off the top. And <clears throat> one of the best ways I know is to have those passages of scripture, those sections of, like um, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, you can just walk right through that. Or one I like is just have, I got like a little chain reference I put in my Bible in the book of Romans. And just say, let's just take, let's take a little walk down Romans Road and just all the passages there that talk. And then you 
pull in a few others to go with it. And you can show them right from your Bible. And I know sometimes in the heat of battle, you forget things. Me? I can be perfectly calm and forget things these days. But even you young folks, that, that's not a problem. You know, when, when the pressure's on, you can forget stuff. It's easy. You get a little bit rattled. But just know where to go, know where to look, know where to point things out to people. And just, I mean, that's, if you don't have things memorized, you know, some of us are better at memorizing than others. And say, if you're, if you're one of those that's not so great at it, just know where to start the show. And just start from there and just move forward, move forward. Give yourself a little chain reference through there. And it, it, you'd be surprised how, how wonderfully that does work. Now, by your who's our opponents? I just talk about, yeah, don't be frightened by your opponents. Well, I like it this way. As long as Satan, who is the prince and power of the air, as long as Satan is on the loose, we're going to have opposition. Okay? It's just Satan's crowd. Hey, they oppose Jesus. Uh, they oppose the apostles. They will, they're going to oppose us. It just goes with the territory. They're, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, let me see how much I've got. Well, Acts chapter 4. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. This is such a great testimony here. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Peter and John are arrested. That's the scene here. So chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the, of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There it is again, the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men, of the men came to be about 5,000. 5,000 of the men. That's not counting women and children. And it came about on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. That would be like your Sanhedrin, right? <clears throat> Verse 6 is interesting. Here's, some, here's going to be some familiar names that, you, that are in the gospel. You, when you think of the trial that Jesus went through, that mockery of a trial. And Annas the high priest was there. Okay. And Caiaphas, okay, he was there. And John and Alexander and all who were in high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they, be, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now remember, they, they, raised, this, they raised the paralytic man. They, they healed him through the power of the Lord. Okay, that's what, that's what fostered all this. And I love this. Then Peter... Remember, this is the Peter that denied Christ just a few months ago. Denied Christ three times. This is a different Peter now. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to, as to how this man has been made well, well, let it be known to you all, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, he calls up the Nazarene because he, he, everybody knew Jesus from Nazareth. Remember, can anything good come from Nazareth? They knew him by that title. So Peter's making it very clear who he's talking about here. That name Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. There, there he goes again, talking about res- resurrection. There he goes. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And then going on to speak about Jesus, uh, Peter quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 118. He goes, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very corner. And then he adds this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Peter, no longer running, no longer hiding, right his eyeball to eyeball with Annas and Caiaphas and the rest of them. There's no other name under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. Strong. A little key as to uh, back up in verse 8. We might be discussing it this Wednesday night at the men's study. We will be. That uh, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what do he do? Preach truth. Preach truth. So if I get an idea what what's the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Speaking truth. Speaking truth. And that's a consistent. We go, if you're interested in men, come Wednesday night. We'll talk about it. Okay. Now, the question for us is, we, see, we saw how Peter and John handled it. The question for us is then, uh, how are we going to handle it? What if we stood where Peter and John? You ever think about that? That's a tight spot. I mean, you're standing before the very people that Christ stood before and wound up on the cross. So, you talk about being possibly intimidated or even scared. Wow. Like I say, that's a different Peter. That's a different Peter. Um, I personally believe that in those circumstances, facing persecution, that God gives special grace in those instances. I, I just look back on the, just throughout the history of the Christian church, all the martyrs that just stood tall. That's the grace of God. That's no human strength when you're facing, uh, they're about ready to open a cage and you get a, a dozen lions and tigers attacking, you know. I mean, how do you do that? That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. So anyway, how do we handle that? And um, I ask myself a lot, you know, or are we not facing opposition because we're not viewed by the enemy as any kind of a threat? Hey, you got to be honest. We got. I, I ask myself of this: Are we, are we even worthy of the opponent's time? If we're not a threat, we're not a threat. Go back to verse twenty-eight. And he also says, "In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you." Where it says there, a sign of destruction for them. Those who actually oppose the gospel, what that's based saying is give, are giving full, full evidence that they are, in fact, enemies of the gospel of Christ. Just full evidence. And as enemies, of, and as enemies they are marked out for destruction. Read Second Peter chapter 2. Read Jude. That's what both of those are talking about. 
They are marked out for destruction. Jude 10 says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. And the estimation, he goes on further to say in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly of of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and in all of these harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, <clears throat> you get Jude's point? These are ungodly people. Okay, These are ungodly people that are going to do ungodly things and they're going to attack everything that is godly. Right? That's, that's their nature. And that's their nature. But also in verse said this by being attacked it says uh, which is a sign read again which is a sign of their destruction for them destruction for them but of salvation for you salvation for you in other words our salvation is like it's being assured in the same way of their destruction it's like our salvation is 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 is, is, is as sure as their destruction it's going to happen because if we're worthy enough to be attacked that's proof of our salvation and therefore and then the fact that they're attacking us is proof of their bound for destruction it's kind of a rough way of uh, putting it here but that's we want to say again just the fact that this goes on is uh, a sign of their destruction but it's the fact that we are worthy of being attacked is a sign of our salvation Okay, that's what's being said here. And <clears throat> look at John, uh, John, just for the sake of time, John, 13, John chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. This is part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Just like, okay, <clears throat> and that from God, it says in verse 28 of Philippians that, and that too from God. Our salvation is from God. Their destruction is going to be from God. All right? And John 3 explains the, the difference between the both. And then verse 29, suffering for the sake of the gospel is part of being a believer. V- verse uh, 29, uh, <clears throat> for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, um, <clears throat> Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering for his sake. It's, again, we've said it before, it goes with the territory. Suffering is part of it. And the more you're out there, the more you're going to suffer. In our, it's hard even to use the term in, in the United States. The most suffering we're going to get is maybe an ugly word. They might call us names. They might, somebody might, even, they might hit you, I don't know. Who knows? They get ugly, but it's usually, it's usually through verbiage they get ugly with it they say nasty things about you make up stuff about you but well john again uh, jesus in john 15 18 says if they reminds his disciples john 15 18 to 20 says if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you 
This is nothing new. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's just, it's just simple logic. The world hates Christ. It'll hate Christ's people. I mean, it's just, it's just a logical deduction. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If, if they kept my word... They will keep yours also. I mean, it's just, again, it's just that simple. It, it, there's just no two ways about it. I mean, and then finally, verse 30. And experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Well, Paul suffered much for the sake of the gospel. As a matter of fact, right now, in reading this letter, right, they know he is being, he's imprisoned in Rome. They know that. So, that's what it means by you now hearing me and seeing me. You've, you've known me all your life. As a matter of fact, when, when um, we won't go there now for the sake of time, but you can read Acts chapter 16 where Paul goes into Philippi for the first time. Where does he wind up? In jail, right? He winds up in jail. Of course, in the process, the Philippian jailer got saved and so did his household, but... Well, he got beaten with rods, first of all. He got beaten, him and Silas, they got beaten, thrown in jail. So, I mean, they knew this from the beginning of his, when he hit town, he was under persecution. And it's going to, again, it's going to happen. And I'll tell you, one of the things that um, always strikes me, Paul, like I say, Paul suffered much for the sake of the gospel. But, you know, at the end of his life, at the end of his life, and I'll close with this, hoping this is something similar, at least, we might, each and every one of us might be able to say with the same confidence Paul said it. In his very last letter, 2 Timothy, at the, at, as he was closing the letter out, and there he was in Rome again in prison, this time in the dungeon awaiting execution. There was no getting out this time. And he writes this to Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's close in the word prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for this time, Lord, and we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the example of Paul, and Lord, we just pray that we could live up to it. Lord, may we be able to look back on our life and say with honesty, we have fought the good fight, we have run the race. May we Lord, by your grace and your strength, may we stand firm for your gospel and your truth. Amen.